And our Bible readings this morning are from Isaiah and from Luke. So first of all, Isaiah chapter 63, starting at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. You, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from on old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And the second reading is from Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may your word live in us bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, today we conclude our Advent Christmas series, Let Light Shine. We've been drawing mostly on texts from the opening chapters of the Gospel uh, according to Luke. But the place we're going to land today is not a conclusion so much as a beginning, the beginning of what you might call Jesus' ministry. I've entitled the sermon, Light from Heaven. And I'm going to use Luke 3, and 
Although Luke 3 is excerpted in the handout, if you get a Bible from the end of the pew and turn to it, because I'm going to range outside of the, the smaller text in the handout, plus it's a good habit to have, to get back to using Bibles here at uh, St. Philip's, I think. Great way to find stuff. Now that COVID's not gone, but we're less anxious about touching Bibles. Okay, now I'm looking at Luke 3, and we're going to hear two voices in Luke 3. Two voices, two descriptions of the coming of the Son of God among us. And the two voices are, are very different. Um, both in a sense from God. One's a voice of warning. One's a voice of welcome. And we're going to just study them together and learn a great deal about I hope. Now the first voice is the voice of John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And what does he say? Well, in chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. This is John speaking. I baptize with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That last sentence is a form of... Uh, before you could combine harvesters in other ways, the way you got the grain out from the, the, the wheat or barley you'd, you'd cut was you'd crump it down, then you throw it up with a fork, a big pitchfork, and the theory was that the wind would blow the chaff away, but the heavier, denser grain would drop down. That's the image here. And that's what John is saying. This, this, this more powerful one who's coming has got his pitchfork, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor throw out the chaff and burn it and keep the grain. That's what John's saying. Then Luke adds what at first seems rather strange to our ears. Verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Makes you wonder what it would be like if John had been proclaiming bad news. It may, may help us understand the, the Greek word there is the word euangelizomai, to evangelize in English. Translated in this translation to proclaim good tidings or good news. And it has the sense of gra a grand announcement, a great announcement. Not just happy news. It's not like just happy news. The Greek Old Testament uses this very word at a key moment. Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good tidings. Same verb. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. There it is again. Who proclaim salvation. Who say to Zion, your God reigns. Well, what is the good news John is proclaiming? We're not told in as many words by Luke. But Luke, like all the other three Gospels, goes back to, to interpret John in terms of chapter 40 of Isaiah. I quote from verse 4 of chapter 3 of Luke, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, quote, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John is that voice. The voice is saying, get ready for the Lord to come. The Lord God will come back to his peak, back to Zion. The great day is at hand. The Lord is returning. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And John is that voice telling Israel now to prepare for the coming of God as king. 
And yet, instead of calling for his hearers, as the hymn puts it, rejoice, your Lord is king, John preaches a baptism of repentance. Why? Because the coming of God calls upon those to whom he will come to get their act together. They've been living as though the Lord was not God. They've got used to the absence of God, you might say. Now it's going to change. For John knows that when the Lord comes, he will purify his people. He'll um, redeem them, but not, not merely affirm them. So there'll be a judgment. There'll be the winnowing fork. Putting, so therefore, John can, even can speak about the coming wrath. His, flee, his, his hearers are fleeing from now, John is very cynical about the crowds flocking out to what must have been a kind of mass movement, it seems to me. They're all coming out to John in the, in the Jordan, but John's not convinced. Do they mean it? Is it just a show? Or as John puts it in his own inimical way in verse 7 and 8, this is how he greets them, right? No welcome here. You brood of vipers, he says. You family of snakes, that's what he says. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just talk, do. Now, the activity of John caused quite a stir. It was, I think, a major movement of national renewal. So the speculation arose whether John might be greater significance than just, just a prophet, even that, as great as that is. Maybe he's more than a prophet. Maybe he could be the Messiah, that is, a commissioned king, a new David, a new David and Solomon wrapped up in one who will come and rescue Israel and rule them on behalf of God. Is that who John might be? But John's answer is enigmatic and suggestive, but no, he's not. He says in verse 16, I baptize you with water. One who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think on John's lips, those words mean this more powerful one will purify Israel, not with mere water, but with the powerful fire of the Holy Spirit and divine power. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, says John gather the wheat into his barn, and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the first voice. A voice announcing the coming of the Lord, but in particular announcing the coming of the Lord who will assess and judge and for people to now change their lives. It's, it's, it's a warning. A warning, and that's an important warning, as we'll see. Now, there's another voice here in, in, in Luke 3, our reading. It's a very different sounding voice at first. This is verse 21 and 22. I quote, When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. 
This time, it's not a voice of a prophet. It's something even more profound. It's a voice from heaven, a voice of delight and joy. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What is this? It's something very rare indeed. It's the voice of God. The voice of God. The heavens are open, we're told, echoing Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The heavens are rent open. An eruption of the divine. And when that happens, two wonderful things happen. One, the Holy Spirit descends upon the Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice says to him, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. What we have here is the delight of the father and pleasure of the father in his son and the father's gift of the Holy Spirit on the son. Now these words from heaven have deep scriptural echoes. You are my son echoes the words of the Lord to his anointed king in Psalm 2 verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. The phrase, whom I love, with you I am well pleased, echoes the words of, of the Lord in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. goes on, I'll put my spirit on him and bring justice to the nations. There you are, there's the spirit and the delight. Further echoes in the, of, the, of the Lord's word to Abraham about his own son. Take your son, your only son whom you love. I say echoes because these are not quotes. The divine voice is not citing scripture, but it's echoing scripture. Um, and, and this is the way often I think the, the New Testament works. Rather than simply quoting, it echoes. It evokes whole meaning just by a short phrase. I'll give you an example in, in another context. If I was to say to you, use the phrase, dawn landing. Just a phrase, like a dawn and That would have suddenly captures, it, was, it echoes clear. It's the Anzacs landing 25th of April, 1915. And just a phrase captures it. It echoes, echoes a much wider meaning. Uh, so here, these phrases that, that you hear in the divine voice are touching and echoing a whole world of meaning of the Lord's appointed son, endowed with the Holy Spirit, who'll bring peace to the nations, who'll be his servant, who'll reign over the nations. That's all just caught as echoes in these words. Even the description, the spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove, seems evocative, doesn't it? Evocative of what, though, you think? Well, the coming of the Holy Spirit to anoint and empower echoes Isaiah 61. The spirit of the law of the sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In another chapter, next chapter, Luke in chapter 4, will tell the story of Jesus reading that very scripture in the synagogue. And then when they sat down, he stood up and he said, electrifying words, he says, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hears. That is, 
as you heard it being read, it came true. For the one speaking, the, reading, the, the reader was reading his own words, as it were. The dove, I'm afraid, eludes biblical scholars. Is it an echo of the dove that Noah sent out when the great flood was over to bring back peace? Is it an echo of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in the opening verses of Genesis? Whatever it is, it is. There it is. Now, this is all the more, this is so astounding that we may forget something or don't miss, miss something that doesn't quite ring right, that doesn't make sense, at least on the first face of it. When did all this happen? When did all this happen? Verse 21. When the people, when all the people were baptised, Jesus was baptised too. As he was praying. But wait a minute. Isn't John's baptism a baptism to prepare Israel, for the come, prepare a sinful Israel to meet the coming Lord? Wasn't it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Luke just slips it in, no explanation. When all the people were been baptised, Jesus was baptised too. But why, why? What does he have to repent of? What did he have to turn his life around for? Now, Matthew's Gospel, I think, is aware of this problem because it, it recounts some more detail we don't get in Luke. And look at Matthew 3.14, we read that when Jesus came to be baptised, quote, John tried to deter him. That's John the Baptist, John, Zechariah's son, tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replies, we read, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. And John consented. Well, um, it's not quite an answer, but it's at least an acknowledgement of an issue. I think what we can say is this. The one who is more powerful than John, <coughs> the one whom John is not worthy of untie his sandals, the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire, the one whom John declares will clear his threshing floor and throw the chaff into the unquenchable fire, that one is first identified not as standing over against his people, but with them, undergoing a baptism he does not need, but identifying with those who do as they repent. He begins in solidarity with those who incurred guilt and yearn for righteousness. He inaugurates his public ministry by stepping into the place of sinners. And at that moment is the moment we have the Father's declaration of delight and pleasure in the Son and the Holy Spirit, a gift from the Father to empower the Son in what's now going to take place, the mighty works he'll be doing. Taking all this on board, what, what do we see in this baptism? I think it's an insight into the gospel itself. It's the gospel in a nutshell, which will then unfold all its glory and drama. As the, as, the, as the gospel continues being. Now, this scene is very common in Christian art. Here, for example, is 
a classic picture by Andrea del Vericchio and with Leonardo da Vinci, uh, 15th century. It's also in very early Christian art. Here's a primitive depiction from a catacomb in Rome, uh, 330, just after Christianity became no longer illegal. They found that. This common to it, the form of icons. Here's an iconic uh, presentation, typical example of the story there, you see it. More perspective with the Renaissance painter, Piero della Francesca, 1440s. We also see this scene in mosaics in the roofs of churches. Here's one from Constantinople. You're looking up. That's from a monastery built between sometime the 14th century. At the other extreme, we find contemporary American popular religious art. You can't get more different, can you, in that presentation? That's trying to capture this, the, the sense of, of the realism. And a modern attempt to capture something of the ancient icon style by James Jankite. This is 1991, very recent. And last of all, here in Australia, Abrazados Peter Nagjima, the baptism of Jesus. All these are seeking to portray the wonder and mystery of the baptism of the Son of God at the beginning of the gospel. The Lord returns to Israel as promised as the son begins his journey identifying with sinners, we see the father's gift of the Holy Spirit on the son and the father's delight in and pleasure with the son. And these, this reality is an image, I think, of a deeper truths. It's an image of the whole of God's son going forth into our world to identify with us to the point of death it's even, a, it's even an image of the eternal way in which the Son comes forth from the Father. In the quotes, I put a note from the Nicene Creed, which we save only, we, a special church creed we have at communion. Have you noticed them before? We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God. You see that? He's God, but he's from God. He's light, but he's from light. He's true God, but he's from true God. He goes forth, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. I've got a quote there, the second quote, a rather dense quote, but well worth studying, by American author David Bentley Hart. He reads the baptism in this way. I'll read it carefully with you. The descent into the waters whereby Christ submits to a sanctification of which he has no need, is an image both of the way of the Son into creation, his gracious descent into flesh, time and space, and ultimately into the darkness of death and hell, but also of the way of the Son 
goes forth eternally from the Father, receiving all from the Father and restoring all to him in selfless adoration. Both the eternal relations and the historical for us and for our salvation. The gospel in a nutshell. And, and that, in the words of the great early theologian Basil of Caesarea, quote, every act of God is inaugurated by the Father, effected by the Son, perfected by the Holy Spirit. Every act of God is inaugurated by the Father, effected by the Son, perfected by the Holy Spirit. So we've come to our last question. We have two voices. How do we put them together? The voice of warning, the voice of delight. Must it be one or the other? Can we not hear them both in stereo? Yes, and neither cancel one to cancel the other out. What we will hear is this. The one who will be our judge is judged in our place in the good pleasure of the Father. The one who will be our judge will be judged in our place in the good pleasure of the Father. And the call to repent arises not simply from the fear of judgment, though it does, but from an awareness of the overwhelming grace and goodness and delight of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit acting to restore and redeem. Next week, we're going to start a new series called Transforming Grace, and we'll unpack that further then. Let's pray. Eternal Father, who at the baptism of Jesus revealed him to be your Son, anointing him with the Holy Spirit, grant to us who are born again by water and the Spirit that we may be faithful to our calling as your adopted children, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.